record. Okay, we got your little recorder there, yeah? Yeah, and you'll mute everybody. Yeah, I'm going to mute everybody now. Um, can you... David, can you hear me now? No, obviously not. Okay, let me uh, mute everybody. Okay, this is the Shia on the book of Yechezkel, Ilurish Nishmosam, Ephraim Shmuban, Abraham Maria Cohen, and Chaya Tovabas, Eliezer Mendel Cohen on the book of Yechezkel. And David Barrett has got Linda with him. So, Linda, Linda, can you hear me? <clears throat> Just let's have a voice. Linda, get rid of your mute. You're muted. Lose the mute and let me know that you can hear me. Put your thumb up if you can hear me. I've got you on the tablet. All right. Okay, perfect. Okay, so let's start. Um, obviously, the year is dedicated as well, as well as to Larry's parents, to all our soldiers, all our support staff, all our medical staff, everybody in the land of Israel who's under this uh, terrible uh, stress at the moment. Uh, the learning should be a uh, Yeshua for all the whole of Klal Yisrael. Uh, we're in Yechezkel, we're in chapter 30, and we're in verse 9. And in verse 9, uh, this is, uh, I'm going to do something I, I want, never intended to do, but uh, just uh, the, situ- the situation that prevents itself, presents itself forces us into this. Um, God is talking about uh, the false prophets of Jerusalem, and he outlines three punishments. And uh, we discussed this last week. Um, the three punishments that's coming their way. Uh, the Novi says in verse 9, They will not be in the secret council of my people. They won't be written in the register of the house of Israel. And they will not come into the land of Israel. And the last thing we discussed was the Malbim. Uh, the Malbim says that these three punishments, let me just mute everybody. The Malbim says that three, three punishments designed for the false prophets of Israel, uh, not just in that generation, but the false prophets of Israel in every generation. Um, they're, they're <clears throat> punished, three punishments <clears throat> are paralleled by three gifts that were given to the Jewish people. And three gifts that were given to the Jewish people, as the Gemara says uh, in Brochus, which is what we'll deal with in just a second, were Torah, Eretz Yisrael, and the world to come. Um, and the Gemara actually says, this is the Gemara in Brochus, the Gemara says there, Tanya, Rab Shimon ben Yochai Omer, Rab Shimon ben Yochai says, Shalosh Matonos Tovos, Noson HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yisrael. God gave three gifts to the Jewish people. But all three are required, acquired, not required, acquired uh, through suffering through the purification of suffering. Elu hey, Torah, Eretz Yisrael, the Olam Haba. The Torah, the land of Israel, and the world to come. Says the Gemara, this is the bit we haven't done yet. Says the Gemara, Torah minai. How do we know that the Torah is only acquired by a suffering? Shinema, the Posuk says, Ashrei hagevash eti yasrenu yoh. Happy is the man whom God causes to suffer. After which it says straight away, and through that suffering, he'll come to learn the Torah, says, which we need to explain. Eretz Yisrael, 
Uh, what about the land of Israel? How do we know that is only acquired through suffering? It says in Devorim, as a man rebukes his son, so God rebukes you. And straight after it says, And God will bring you to a good land through suffering. And finally, Olam Haba, um, the world to come, Tichsev is acquired through suffering. How do we know that? The Pesach says in Mishlei, Kiner Mitzvah Torah Or, the mitzvah is, a mitzvah is like a lamp, the Torah is like a light, and the, the rebuke and the instructions are a way of, are, are the way of its life. In other words, um, the, 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 the way of life, meaning the way to the, to Olam Haba is through rebuke and suffering. So these are the three things that, uh, the Gemara describes, uh, Torah, Eretz Yisrael and the world to come, the Olam Haba. And as the Malbim points out, these are the three punishments that will be suffered by the false prophets of Israel. They won't be able, they'll be cut off. Uh, their generations will be cut off from the world of Torah. Their generations, uh, descendants won't be Jewish. But Eretz Yisrael, they won't have a, a chalek in the land of Israel and they won't go to Olam Haba. But the point we got up to last time was, why is it? I posed the question last week. Why is it? It's the question that's asked by um, the Ben Yehoiada here. Um, why is it that these three things, the Torah, the land of Israel, and the world to come, ha- are required only through suffering? Um, and um, uh, he he writes the following, and uh, we're going to push on with this. And uh, he says as follows. Um Starting off with Torah, he says it appears, I'm going to read it in English, uh, it's a very long piece by the Ben Yoda here on this Gemara, so I paraphrased it into English. He says it's, it appears that the reason why Torah is acquired only through suffering is to test the intention and integrity of those who learn Torah, because there are those who learn Torah and treat it as just another academic exercise. These people learn Torah not because of their love of, love of God, and the love of his Torah, but rather to just accumulate information and knowledge, just like they would with any other academic subject, knowing that the Torah contains hidden knowledge and worthwhile knowledge uh, that they wish to accumulate for their own academic reasons. And such a person should not be given an understanding heart to obtain understanding of the truths and insights of the Torah, and therefore, what does God do to test a person to see whether he's studying the Torah for the sake of heaven because he loves God and because he loves the Torah or because he just wants to accumulate information about how the universe runs? And this is God's test. If a person is willing to endure suffering in order to learn Torah and connect to his creator through, say, poverty or sickness, then we can be sure he is learning for the sake of heaven and uh, the academic, secular student of Torah will not persevere if he suffers as a result of learning Torah. And although God knows the hearts of men and knows their true intentions when they study Torah, God will persist with the suffering to convince the heavenly court of the sincerity of those that are learning Torah for the right reasons, which will maximize their reward from their study. 
which is a little bit difficult to understand, and we'll come back to this as well. Uh, the second thing he says is regarding the land of Israel. The land of Israel, and we we know that the land of Israel, you don't move to the land of Israel to become wealthy. You move to the land of Israel with a, you want to make a large fortune in the land of Israel, move here. Uh, sorry, if you want to make a small fortune in the land of Israel, move here with a large one. The land of Israel is only acquired through suffering. There's no oil here. There's no gold in them, their hills. Um, when we returned to the land of Israel after 2,000 years, there wasn't much to greet us, to greet our eyes. Uh, I'm talking about us. It wasn't me, but these people that came, uh, they found, if you read uh, if you read um, uh, accounts of what the land of Israel looked like 150 years ago, you'll understand. And um, uh, Benjamin Disraeli's description and the description of... Um, <clears throat> Uh, a great American author. <clears throat> His name escapes me. <laughs> Excuse me. Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. Mark, yeah, Mark Twain. Yeah. And he says, the land of Israel is acquired through suffering. This is to test a person's motivation as to whether he's coming to live in the land of Israel for economic or geopolitical or any other reasons other than to perform the hundreds of extra mitzvahs one can can, can perform when one lives in the land of Israel. And in this way, the Jews have been tested with suffering throughout their history, with many journeys and exiles to lands across the the globe. And if Jews' intention was to return to the land of Israel, just to escape the misery of exile, then you know that their intention was not pure. But if their yearning to return to the land of Israel was tempered by the fact that they knew they were required to suffer the indignity of exile first. And they waited patiently, suffering in exile, for God to return them to the land, believing that God would make good on that promise. Then you can be sure that their motives were pure. This altruistic attitude is typified by a pasuk in Bamidbar when the Jews were traveling in the desert. It says, Al pi Hashem Yachanu, pi Hashem Yisol. At God's bidding, they camped, and at God's bidding, they traveled. Totally under the protection, un, under the auspices of God, the providence of God, that when people had the opportunity to return, God wanted to see who wanted to return. And this is a, a recurring theme throughout Jewish history. Um, everybody knows that uh, when the Babylonian exile ended, very, very few, less than 1% of the Jewish population returned. What's little, what's less known, uh, is what happened during the Spanish Inquisition and the exile from the uh, expulsion from Spain in 1492. Uh, about 25 years later, or 22 years later, I think it was, in, in or 18 years later, in 1510, um, Suleiman the Magnificent, right? he was magnificent, Suleiman, um, it gave the opportunity for Jews to return to the to Tiberias. He offered, under the um, pressure put upon him by various Jews, uh, the opportunity to return to Tiberias and escape the Inquisition. Remember, Suleiman was a Muslim, <clears throat> and uh, he gave Jews. He opened the the city of Ti- Tiberias um, to Jewish return, and almost nobody came. So what uh, <clears throat> what 
<clears throat> the Ben Yoda is saying here is God God wants to know. God wants to know if the return to Zion is uh, for altruistic reasons. And that's why he makes it very hard. The streets are not paved with gold here. Um, it never has been. And it's always been very hard to live here. Um, <laughs> we don't have to be told that. And says the Ben Yoda, similarly, the world to come is only acquired through suffering. The world to come is the place of a person's ultimate reward and pleasure for the Torah, mitzvahs, and good deeds that they have, uh, they have performed. Remembering, of course, that the reward in the world to come is, in accordance, in a, is according to the multiplicity of the Torah, mitzvahs, and good deeds that they have performed, performed whilst they were alive. If a person endures suffering in his life, he will struggle to increase his Torah learning, his good deeds, and his mitzvahs. And the three crucial things by which a person accumulates reward payable in the next world, uh, where eternal joy and external eternal reward is given, um, God will test you on that. So through this suffering, which limits or tries to limit your ability to accumulate Torah, and chesed and mitzvahs, a person can come to realize that his suffering is minimizing rather than maximizing his potential reward in the world to come. And if a person, despite his suffering, nevertheless engages in Torah and mitzvahs for the sake of heaven, in order to fulfill God's commandments and God's will, and if he accepts all the suffering God brings upon him, and he recognizes and believes that this is God's will, he will not be disappointed by the suffering he enjoys, but rather he will feel blessed and happy to receive the suffering because he knows it's the will of the creator testing him as to his altruistic attitude, regardless of the fact that it appears to him that as a result of the suffering, his reward in the next world might be diminished because of his inability to maximize the Torah, Chesed and Mitzvahs that he can perform whilst he's alive. And he will have no regrets because he is faithful to God in God's promise that he who fulfills God's will will ultimately be blessed in the world to come after receiving physical and mental torments. Now that's the approach of the Ben Yehoyodah, um, why these three things are so difficult to attain, not to attain, but uh, they're acquired through suffering. And... Um, I just want to di get, divert a little bit because of this. I wouldn't do this normally, but uh, I want to divert a little bit into this notion of the land, particularly the land of Israel, uh, living in the land of Israel, um, acquiring the land of Israel through suffering. Um, there's a lot been written on this. Uh, I just want to go through uh, a little bit of background to it. Um, um, we'll start off with the Maharal. This is in the Derech HaChaim. Uh, the Maharal writes like this. Ukumoshi is Bab and Nesiva Sola. She is Bab and Nesiva Sola. Just like I, I explained in my Sefer, the Nesiva Sola, Ki HaTorah Bifrat Hu HaSeichel Ba'achokma She'enel Midas Gufanis. That the thing that sets Torah learning apart from everything else, any other academic exercise and any other uh, intellectual discipline is it's she'ena midagufanis. It's got nothing to do with the physical universe at all. L learning Torah. 
ולפיכך אין אדם מגיע למעלה הבלתי גופניס רק בהזמיית הגופניס. In order to advance in Torah study, one has to reduce his dependence, so to speak, on the physical world. And suffering, physical suffering, reduces a man's uh, dependence, so to speak, on the physical world. He understands that um, suffering is a tool by which God uses you, uh, uses to... Concentrate your mind on something that's other than spirit, uh, physical, something that's spiritual. Until you have got the ability to reach a level uh, of understanding, intellectual uh, ability to understand that this study that you are taking upon yourself has got nothing to do with the physical world. It's purely part of a relationship you have with God. And that's what it means when the Gemara in, in Brochus and Dafhei says, Kabbalah Yisurin, a person has to accept physical suffering, whether it's uh, uh, medic- uh, medical problems or uh, problems making a living, whatever it is, that this is a test um, to focus your mind on what really matters, something that is uh, uh, not gufanis, not uh, physical, that's not transitory, that it's something that is... Um, Netzachi, uh, uh, it is eternal. Shemakabel lov hamismayit aguf hachomri, that you reduce uh, your interaction with the physical world. Ula salik, and this is what the Gemara says in Brochus, and he quotes the Gemara in Brochus, and he says, he adds to this, he says, he quotes Reish Lokish in the Gemara, he says, the word bris, covenant, promise, arrangement with God is used with regards to salt. And the word bris is also used with regard to afflictions. So what does he what does he mean by that? So he says the word bris, which means covenant, promise, arrangement, your relationship with God, is used in relation to salt, as it's written, below Sashpis Melach Babris, the salt of the covenant with your God should not be excluded from your offerings. In other words, every offering that comes on the, in the base of Migdosh, it comes with salt, has to have salt. Um, again, Losashbish Melech Bebris, that uh, when you come to the base of Migdosh and you're offering a sacrifice to create a connection between yourself and God, there has to be salt. We'll see why in a second. He says, and the word bris is used regard to suffering. It says, Eila Divrei Habris. These are the words of the covenant of the Torah, um, which is the intro, the the at the end of the Tochacha, the end of the rebuke in chapter eight twenty eight of Devarim, and he says just just as in the bris mentioned regard to salt, that salt sweetens the taste of the meat and renders it edible, so too in the bris in the relationship between God and the Jewish people in relation to the Torah. Uh, is sweetened through suffering because suffering cleanses a person's sins, purifying him for a more spiritual existence. And when you understand this, in the same way that by adding salt to raw meat, you sweeten the meat, 
So physical ailments and uh, maybe poverty also uh, removes all the impurities from you, from your physical body, until you reach the level where you're able to understand spiritual matters. That's uh, the Maharal. The the point I really want to make here uh, before we discuss suffering, um, because we're at the point here where suffering is... uh, um, part and parcel of what everybody's going through. I don't know if anybody gets the list uh, of all the shiver houses. This is just the shiver houses in Ranana. Multiple shiver houses in Ranana going on um, at the moment. You can imagine what it's like all over Israel. The Jewish people are suffering at the moment. We're trying to hold on to the land of Israel and we're suffering. And the question is why? But I just want to mention something that was said by uh, Rab Tzvi Yehuda Cook, the son of Rab Cook. The Rosh Hashiva of um, the Rosh Hashiva of Merkaz Arav um, regarding suffering. It's brought down by Rav Asher Weisenthal in a sefer called Birchas Asher. He says, "Nimtzom Kain Shalom Mole Hashem Es Yisrael Bigvuras Nitzacher." God does not fill the Jewish people with the power of victory. In other words, the power of victory is not contained in the army. That's not where it is. It's not God's nature to interfere with free will and change the world through miraculous events. That's those are very rare events. Hashem Pachad Al And God will not um force uh those who occupy the land of Canaan. He means the land of Israel, uh, with fear of us. Ki eretz Yisrael niknis b'yusurim, because the land of Israel has to be acquired through Yisurim. They won't be frightened of us, says the Rav Kook. They won't. They 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 they're not frightened of us. Don't don't think for one minute that they're frightened of us. V'chein kol dava and he says everything that is holy in this world. The more something is worthwhile, the more something is holy, the harder it is, and the more something is important to us and to God, the more difficult it is to obtain. He says, and this is Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, um, his Hagdomo, uh, um, his uh, introduction to the book of Shemos, the Sefer Shemos, that don't think for a moment that the enemies that we are taking on, uh, and he's dead, right? So he's talking uh, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, 80 years ago. But the, the, the world's not changed, he says. Don't think for a moment that the people that we're uh, at war with have got any fear of us. They've got the same amuna that we have. They've got the same hope that we have. They've got the same, same nationalistic uh, fervor that we have. Don't think for a moment that they're, they're, they're frightened by us. He says, the only thing that we have got is the fact that we, we have the ability to uh, take this land, to live in this land. That's Parashas Barashas, Rashi says in the first Rashi in Barashas, 
that God owned the whole point of the book of Horatius is to demonstrate who the owner of everything is, who owns everything. The creator owns everything. And he's got the right as the owner to give the land to who he wants. But that doesn't mean it's going to come uh, easy. It's going to come hard, says Rav Kook. And uh, it involves suffering. And uh, the acquisition of the land of Israel will always be through suffering. Now, we as a people uh, who have returned to this land over the last 75 years know all about that. Uh, we've lost uh, every every soldier we lost is a kodok. Uh, if we'd only lost one soldier in the last 75 years, that would have been a tragedy. But uh, in the last week, we've lost, uh, you know, the next nearly 300, 300 soldiers, 300 people, 300 sons, 300 daughters. 300 mothers, 300 fathers. And um, and uh, this is Yusurif. This is Yusurin. And, 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 and there's a feeling. Um, there's an intuitive idea that people, and, and this is where I, I really want to uh, push this point because people make terrible mistakes when they think about suffering. They think of, that the whole idea of suffering uh, comes about because people have sinned. That sin and suffering are, so to speak, um, intertwined hermetically. This is not true. This is absolutely not true. It, it is true that sometimes you will suffer for uh, mistakes or deliberate mistakes that you've done. That's absolutely true. But the whole concept of suffering does not revolve around sin. And this Gemara is a proof for that. That the land of Israel has to be acquired through suffering, Torah is acquired through suffering, the will to come is acquired through suffering, Yusurin. And there's a mistake that people make you know, when they think about life, <clears throat> and it's an intuitive idea, and it's wrong, is that if God rules the world, and God is just, and God is good, then if we are good in the service of God, we should have smooth, happy lives. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because if you look at the history of the Jewish people, um, we just start off from the very start of the Jewish nation, from the time of Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu had eight children. You know, he had uh, Yitzchok and uh, uh, Yishmael. Yishmael didn't turn out to be so good as we're finding out, as we have found out. Um, he had eight children, Yitzchok and Yishmael, and he had six others following the death of Sarah. Uh, he married Keturah. Um, um, one one son, Yishmael, is an existential threat to us to this day. Um, the other six just disappeared off the face of the earth. Well, they disappeared to other parts of the world. They didn't follow in the ways of Abram. Um, only one did, Yitzchak. And yet Yitzchak, what do we see? Yitzchak had a terrible son, Esau, whose, de whose descendants have persecuted us for 3,000 years. Yaakov. Uh, Yaakov's son sold our brother. So that Yaakov had to suffer 22 years of despair. And you're talking about Avram. Yitzchok. Yaakov. You can imagine how Yitzchok felt about his son Esau. Um, how Avram felt about his own child. Yishmael. How Yaakov felt about when he found out. Whether he did find out or he didn't find out that his sons had sold their brother um, and that he had to sit in mourning for 22 years. Yehuda lost two children, 
Aaron lost two children. David lost two children. Then he had another son, Absalom, who launched a rebellion against him and was killed in the rebellion. And David mourned for him bitterly to the day he died. This idea that this idea that uh, you know, if you're one of God's pals, like if you're Avram or Yitzchok or Yaakov or David Amelech or Aaron or Yehuda, that you're going to have an easy life. This is just nonsense. It's just nonsense. Uh, that's just from the perspective of children. Uh, what about the marriage? Suffering in marriage. Again, back to Avram and Sora. Avram and Sora, they lived in Mesopotamia. Uh, they got married young. They see all their friends getting older, having children, making bar mitzvahs, making weddings, inviting their grandchildren over, all except for them. They're by themselves, invited to other people's simchas. In an excruciating life where all they wanted to do was have a child, they were denied it. Imagine the suffering in that. Um, and there's the competition in the next generations, the competition between Leah and Rochel. David Amelech himself has to curse his own wife, and she becomes barren till the day she dies. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. David Amelech's life is, as I explained to the ladies last night, David Amelech's life is, 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 is out of the frying pan into the, fr into the fire. His life is a continuous, a continuous uh, tale of woe, tale of suffering. What about person, personal lives? <clears throat> Again, David Amela, his brother and his father thought he was a mamza. Um, even when Shmuel arrived, <clears throat> we know from the story that when God told Shmuel to go on and uh, anoint the next king of Israel, uh, and he could be found as one of the sons of Yishai. So when Shmuel arrived, so Yishai brought out all his sons, all except for David, of course, who he thought was a mamza. He had him working in the field. And Shmuel thought one of these seven children must be the king. And every time he thought he got the right one, so God says, no, not, not that one. And then at the end, uh, Shmuel says to Yishai, he says, are these all your sons? And he says, yeah, these are, I, got, no, I haven't got any other sons. And um, he said, there must be, because I'm here to anoint the next king of Israel. And it's none of these guys. He says, well, there's the Mamza. We've got the Mamza in the field. David, you can have a word with him. And David walks in the room. And uh, Shmuel says, that's my man. That's him. And David describes, David describes, if you look in Tehillim chapter 69, you'll see. David Amalekh describes his youth. Every time, you know, every time the checkbook went missing, so it was David Amalekh. Every time something was stolen, it was David Amalekh. Every time, every time it was, you know, there was something went wrong, it was David Amalekh. It was a little mamza. It was a little ginger mamza that did it. He describes it in great detail. If you read, if you read chapter 69 of Tehillim, you'll hear the most tragic youth, uh, uh, childhood imaginable. And uh, moving forward, the Tanoim and the, the Amoroim, um, there's a there's a sefer called the Torah Samincha, uh, which is written by Rabbi Yaakov ben Hanan al Skili, the Talmud of the Rajbo in Spain, 
who describes that the majority of the Tanoim and Amoroim who we see, you know, you see these the the, the rabbis of the Talmud, the Tanoim and the Amoroim, you, you think they're writing, you know, you think they're sitting in Miami Beach, you know, in a in a in a penthouse suite overlooking the ocean on uh you know writing their uh, opinions um overlooking uh you know overlooking the gulf of mexico well nothing could be further from the truth he writes in he, in this this book the torah samincha that the majority of the tanoima amoroim that we read about in the gemara suffered tremendous physical elements throughout their lives and rabbi yehuda hanasi the author of the mishnah is a prime example he suffered terrible ailments all his life. Um, moving forward, uh, old age and death, Yitzchak and Yaakov both went blind before they died. Yishayol, the great Yishayol, anyone makes a list of the five greatest prophets in Jewish history, Yishayol makes everybody's list. Yishayol, in his old age, was chased into the forest by his grandson, Menashe, King Menashe. And he found uh, a fa- found a hiding place in a hollow tree, and his grandson Manasha found him, and he uh, he carved the tree into pieces, and carved his grandfather into pieces as well. Uh, we move forward into the time of the uh, Gemara. Well, we got so we just had Yom Kippur. You got the ten Haruge Malchus. Rabbi Shimon Gamliel was beheaded. The great Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel beheaded by the Romans. Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, Caesar's daughter, was so taken by Rabbi Shmuel's uh, uh, beauty that she ordered his head to be skinned while he was alive so that could, she could have it stuffed and preserve it and she could put it on her, um, you know, on her nightstand and have a look at it because he was so handsome. Rabbi Akiva had his skin flayed. Rabbi Hanina ben Tarajin was burned alive. Rabbi Chutzpit Haturgaman was murdered and dismembered. Rabbi Loza ben Shemua, these are the greatest of all the Tanoim, murdered. Rabbi Hanida ben Chachinoi, murdered. Rabbi Yeshevav Hasofa, murdered. Rabbi Yehuda ben Doma, murdered. Rabbi Yehuda ben Bova was caught by Hadrian soldiers while giving Samicha. He told his students to run, but he was too old to run. Hadrian soldiers uh, fired 300 arrows at him. The Gemara described them that uh, after they fired the arrows into his body, he looked like a sieve. Uh, the Gemara, not humorous, but uh, the Gemara wants to let you know what he looked like. So, uh, and you could go on for hours. So if you think <clears throat> living your life according to the Torah and uh, doing mitzvahs and learning Torah and doing gemilas chasodim um, and doing everything that the Torah demands guarantees a smooth path, you've got to think again. The last 2,000 years of Jewish history has produced terrible suffering. And what, what can we say? What can we say about it? I mean, intuitively, this shouldn't happen. But lo We can't hope to fathom. If you believe in God, one of the prerequisites for belief in God, not belief, trust in God, is that he knows what he's doing. And that we can't possibly comprehend the level of suffering that we see, the level of suffering we've seen in the last two weeks, the week and a, the last week and a bit, uh, what we've seen over the last 2,000 years of Jewish history. There's no rule for it. If there was a rule for it, we could under, try and understand it. 
But if there was a rule for it, there'd have, there'd have to be a rule that governs all suffering. And there just isn't. The suffering, as the Zohar says, the suffering of Jewish people is built into the world from the creation itself, which is very hard for us to take. And um, the Ramchal <clears throat> in the Mesilis Shisharim, the path of the just, in the first chapter, he writes like this. And I'm, I'm not trying to um, minimize anything here. I'm just I'm just trying to give us sort of a perspective <coughs> on on the nature of what it means to be the Jewish people and uh, that we shouldn't imagine that we're immune to anything, that uh, the land of Israel and being Jewish is the, the, the suffering, as the Zohar said, the suffering of the Jewish people is built into the world from the creation itself, which is very hard to take. And the Masili Shishorim, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzatov, this is what he writes. Amazing. This is in the first chapter of the Masili Shishorim, The Path of the Just. How many sorts of distress and sicknesses, pain and burdens um, do we have to um, endure? And after all that, all we have looked to look forward to is death. Very optimistic uh, note. Not one in a thousand can be found to whom this world has granted. He's talking about the Jewish people. Not one in a thousand can be found to whom this world has granted plenty of pleasure and true contentment. And even such a person, if he reaches the age of a hundred, already is as one who has already passed and disappeared from the world. Furthermore, if the purposes of man's creation were for the sake of this world, it would not have been necessary to imbue him with such a lofty and exalted soul, greater even than the angels, angels themselves. This is especially so when the soul finds no satisfaction whatever from all the pleasures of this world. And he says, this is what the Medrash Kohala says. And he, he, the point he's making here is the soul is suffering here. The soul does not want to be here. And he says, this is what the Medrash Kohela says, the soul will never be fulfilled in this world. That's Shlomo uh, Melech. Says the Ramchal, what is this analogous to? Again, the Masilla What is this analogous to? To the case of a common peasant who married the king's daughter. And uh, you have this woman who's brought up in the lap of luxury. She's been given everything from the silver spoon in her mouth from the day she was born, and now she marries a penniless peasant. Says Ramchal, even if he brought her all, the, all that his village possessed, he brought her all the jewelry in the world, it would be as nothing to her, for she is the king's daughter. So too with the soul. If you would bring the soul all the pleasures of this world, they would be like nothing to her. For she is from a higher world, and he quotes um, he quotes Pirkei. This is, and I'm really not doing this to to you know depress anybody. I'm just telling you this. This is this is Jewish philosophy at its very core. He quotes Pirkei Avos, "Shal Against your will were you formed, and without your permission you were born." 
and against your will you live. And against your will, without your permission, you die. And despite the fact that you, you know, you you weren't consulted whether you should be formed, whether you should be born, whether you should live, whether you should die. God doesn't consult you. Nevertheless, when you die, you're destined to give a judgment and accounting before the King of Kings, HaKadosh Baruch And he says, as I just mentioned, the soul of a human being and certainly the neshama of a Jewish person does not want to be here in this world. This world is exile for the soul. The soul is chelek elokamimah. It's a piece of God's infinite essence forced into the physical world and suffers every second that it has to be here. The Torah says twice. Again, the Ramchal continues. If we do not live up to our responsibilities of Jews, there is a price to pay. He says, if you don't believe me, Look at Devorim chapter 28 and read it through, which is the rebuke, which is the curses of the Jewish people, that if they don't keep the Torah, he says, you will see that nothing that has happened to the Jewish people in the last 2,000 years is missing from that chapter. A frightening observation. What shall we say, and now back to reality, what shall we say today? Here we are in the land of Israel. After all the everything that uh, after the Babylonian Holocaust, a, mil, a third of the Jewish population murdered. After the Roman Holocaust, a third of the Jewish population murdered. After everything else that's happened to the Jewish people throughout the centuries, Spain, Germany, France, England, everywhere, wherever you go, it's a graveyard of the Jewish people. Uh, after uh, at the hands of the Christians less so at the hands of the Muslims, although they're trying to make up for it now. Um, what shall we say today? Today, today, on the 16th, on Rosh Chodesh, on Rosh Chodesh Mar Cheshvan. What shall we say? Rosh Chodesh Mar Cheshvan, Taf, Shin, Pegim, Pegdale. What shall we say today? After a millennia of suffering that's actually predicted in the Torah itself. What can we say? It's a shock that it ha- did happen, but it's certainly not a shock that it could happen because we're warned beforehand. Pain and suffering of the Jewish people should not shock us, unfortunately, uh, although it continues to do so. Um, and it, sh- you know, it shouldn't shock us because we, this is, this has been our existence for 2000 years and more, 2,350 years. Um, what's more important than whether it shocks us or not, and whether we get into a state of despair or anything else, how we react or what our response to the suffering is the key. The key to everything is the response that God expects and God demands and how ha- as to how we respond to the suffering. So just for a couple of minutes, I want to deal with the Jewish response to suffering. And again, 
this is I'm I'm not making this up. This is all um, stuff that uh, we should know that you required to know that um, is part of the very essence of being a Jew uh, to understand what our reactions should be to suffering. When we consider that uh, there are no guarantees, there are no guarantees in this world. God guarantees the individual nothing. I mentioned this, I mentioned this on many occasions. The first parish of the Shema is in the first person. It's dealing with you. It's all in the singular, first person singular. It's dealing with you. That you are required. All in the singular. No promises are given to the individual. So <clears throat> when bad things happen to us, what's the Jewish response? What's the Jewish response to suffering? So stage one. And again, I'm using uh, the words of uh, Chazal, the words of the great um, philosophers of Judaism, the Rambam, uh, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzatar, the Mamari Korim, the Seifari Korim, the Ramban, Rav Sajib. These are these these are uncontestable uh, 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 philosophy that uh, it should be known to every Jew. So stage one, um, there's a verse that we're going to come to in Yechazkel quite shortly in the 16th chapter that says the following. And anybody that's ever been to a bris uh, will know these words. Um, they're very famous. God says uh, the following. And I pass by you. And saw, God says, I passed by you and saw you downtrodden with your blood. And I said to you, and I said to you, with your blood, which is in the plural, is blood in the plural. Although there's no bloods, we don't usually say the word bloods, but the word is plural. It says, with your blood, you will live. And then he repeats it, with your blood, you will live. Now, the word, as I just said, is plural, and it occurs twice in the verse. Um, and the implications, we'll see in a second, uh, when we get to it in Yechezkel, in chapter 16, verse 6, the implication is there are four types of blood by which our relationship with God is formed. And the first two are obvious. We should know about them. The blood of the, blood of the bris milah, and that's, we say this posuk, when a child is uh, circumcised. So the first blood, first of the four, is the blood of the bris milah. The second blood is the blood of the korban Pesach, that forged us into a nation under God's providence. That was the first time, so to speak, when God says God was Posach, the idea of Pesach and the redemption and Geula, <clears throat> that God took us out of Egypt, Goy Mikarev Goy, that we became a nation. The catalyst for that, that was the Korban Pesach, the blood of the Korban Pesach. They put the blood on the uh, lintels of their door. But what about the other bloods? 
What about the other bloods that Yechezkel references here? So, the Boston Rebbe, Zechot the former Boston Rebbe, Zechot Tzadik says as follows, when Aaron's two sons died, Nodav and Avihu, they died after offering a, a strange korban. There was a, a, a sacrifice, they brought fire into the Mishkan, they didn't have the right to do it, and they were struck down, they were killed. Says the Boston Rebbe, what was Aaron's response? What words does the Torah use to describe Aaron's res- response to the death of his own children? The Posuk says, by Yidom Aaron, and Aaron was silent. But uh, it is in Vayikra in chapter 10 that he accepted jud- God's judgment in silence. And the to- Torah deliberately, says the Bosna Rebbe, uses the root of the word for blood. The word for blood is dam. It uses that root to describe <coughs> Aaron's Aaron's response to losing two sons. By Yidom, from the language of dam, says, says the Boston Rebbe, one way of dealing with suffering is the Aaron way. To be silent, to accept God's judgment and accept it and uh, understand that we don't understand. And to be moda to a Kodesh Baruch Hu, to trust in a God that he knows what he's doing. And he says, Aaron accepted it. And so have the Jewish nations, this is what he writes. And so have the Jewish nations throughout our history accepted it. We're still here. After all these millennia of persecution, murder, rape, pillage, destruction, right up until the present time, right up until last week. We've suffered terribly right up until this latest tragedy, and we've had the power and perseverance to accept God's judgment and move forward, and we're still here. That's what it means, vayido. When we're struck with blood, when when we're massacred with dam, the language that uh, the Torah uses, vayido. Yes, you've been struck with blood, but you've got to be silent. You've got to accept it. That's the nature of the Jewish people. That's what's accepted, expected. That's what God expects. Says the Chobetz Chaim and Rabbi Elia Lopian, my Rabbi Zayda, and Rabbi Chodem Vassaman, Hashem Yikom Damo, who was killed in the Holocaust. He says at the time of the Mashiach, the tragedies that will strike the Jewish people will be so horrendous that they'll be unconscionable. And, and our only response has to be Vayido. Yes, God. We see the blood of our people, damn, on the floor. But Vayido, we, we bow to your judgment. But he says, Rabelia says, and the Chovetz Chaim says, and Rabbi Elchon and Vassman also say, but don't confuse accepting God's harsh judgment in the past with being fatalistic about the future. That's incorrect. Yes, we have to accept the past. Yes, we have to understand that God's running the world and that whatever suffering comes our way, there's a reason for it, even though we can't rationalize it intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, because uh, we don't have the capacity to do so, and we don't have the insights to do so. 
But don't confuse the depression about the past with being fatalistic about the future. The future can always be improved. Uteshuvo tefillah tzedakah. The future can always be changed. That the Jewish people are always on notice to do teshuvah. That the Jewish people are always on notice to daven. That the Jewish people are always on notice to do tzedakah. Well, it's monetary or giving up your time for other people, which is what we're seeing now. We're seeing now all these things. After a year of sinas chinam in the land of Israel, when tragedy has struck the Jewish people, we see teshuva. Uh, somebody sent me a video of, of uh, secular soldiers queuing up to be given a pair of tzitzes to go into the shetach, to go into battle. Queuing up to put tefillin on. And as the Gomorrah and Kedushin on that Lama test says, hear her to teshuva. Even if they only do teshuva for one second, that's all God wants. A second where they say, God, please help me. That's all God wants. That's one part of it. The rest of us, the rest of us, tefillah, davening for the troops, davening for the first responders, davening for our people, and tzedakah, which, again, you can see right across the land of Israel. People doing things for other people, people preparing meals, people sending goods and goodies out to the to the uh, army, to the soldiers. Why couldn't we have done this a year ago? Why has it taken this tragic event for all this to happen? But what Rebellia says, and what Rehobitz Chaim says, the future can always be changed. The past is gone. But we have to be positive about the future by making sure our commitment to God is rock solid. So that's stage one. By Yidom, by Yidom Arab, we've got to accept God's judgment without being fatalistic about the future. We can change the future. We can be united in the future. We can show... We can do teshuva for a second. We can daven. Those of us who know how to daven, as everyone sitting here knows how to daven. So take an extra five minutes daven. Think about everybody everybody who's out there who's providing the haikorosatov, the gratitude we have to show to these youngsters. Some of them are our sons and children and cousins and brothers and sisters risking their lives so that we can we can have security. Spend an extra five minutes thinking about that. And Sadaka, doing everything we can to support the people who are trying to defend this land, including ourselves, visiting the sick, visiting Shiva houses. And again, the list of Shiva houses in Renani is frightening. We're a little town here of 70,000 people. And the list of Shiva houses is, you know, it's it's the most depressing thing to look at. So that is stage one. That's stage one of the Jewish response to suffering. Stage two is it's appropriate to express pain. And maybe I'll deal with this next week because we're running out of time, but I'll just start. Expressing pain is appropriate. During davening, it's appropriate to engage God. Don't just go through the Shemona Esra, you know, like you would do normally and read off a list of people that are sick 
or read off of people that you're worried about. No. No, that's not enough. Engage God and express one, one's feelings. Tell God, look down. What are you doing? What's going on here? Pay attention. Dovid Melach himself in Tehillim, in chapter 44 of Tehillim, in verse 23, he says, he says to God, Ura, God, wake up. Loma Tishan, why are you sleeping, Adonai? Why are you sleeping, God? Hokitza el tiznach lonetzach. Arouse yourself. Do not forsake us forever. It's appropriate. It's appropriate to challenge God. Not in a chutzpahdik manner. But you can say, these are the words of, if David HaMelech hadn't written them, you couldn't write them. Ura loma tishan Adonai. Why, why, why are you asleep? Why are you asleep at the wheel? Hokitsa, get up. Al tiznach lonetzach, don't forsake us. Says the Ramchal, did David Amelech really think God was asleep? Of course not. It just seems to us that sometimes God is not paying attention to us, and David Amelech is telling us that we have the right to challenge. We have the right to demand that God help us in our times of tragedy. And that we do through tefillah. Just, you know, eye contact with the uh, Shimon Esra, with the Amida, and uh, just going through it. At the, t- the, at the time we're at now, at the existential point we're at now, here on the 16th of uh, uh, October 2023, that's just not enough. That's just not acceptable. Accept God's judgment, yes, but express your feelings. And I'll, I'll just finish off with uh, the story of um, uh, Rab, Rab, uh, uh, Rab Levi Yitzchok of Bedichev. Rab Levi Yitzchok of Bedichev is famous for being the great defender of the Jewish people. There's tremendous stories told about him that once he saw a man. Uh, changing a wagon wheel in the dirt while he was wearing his tefillin. And people came out and um, and they they criticized this guy. They said, look at him. What a terrible fellow. He's, he's dirting himself while wearing his tefillin. Said, said Rav Levi Yitzhak of Bidichev. He said, you got it all wrong. Look at this guy. He's at work. And yet he still wants to wear his tefillin. <clears throat> Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Bedichev is said to have challenged God one Rosh Hashanah to a lawsuit. The Din Torah. He says, God, you no right to prolong Israel's exile when other more sinful nations were allowed to live in peace and pros- pro- prosperity. Now, this is a very famous story of, uh, of Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Bedichev, and it was picked up and uh, um, rolled up into a story by Ellie Weasel in his Holocaust memoir, Night, and later formed the basis for a play, for his play, The Trial of God, which is all based on this particular true-life story of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bedicha. And he writes that on Rosh Hashanah, from the depths of their sorrow and despair, the inmates of Auschwitz called God to judgment and condemned him 
for condemned God, finding guilty for allowing such evil and suffering in his world and particularly to the Jewish people. Now, both stories, that of Rav Levi Yitzchuk of Bedichev and that of the Auschwitz inmates that was um, written by Eli Wiesel, they both end in the same way. After declaring God's guilt, after accusing God in a Din Torah and finding God guilty, the accusers rise up and say the Kaddish. Right? Now, the Kaddish isn't a prayer for the dead. Don't, don't make that mistake. The Kaddish has got nothing to do with dead people. The Kaddish is a proclamation, a declaration, an affirmation of God's sovereignty over the universe. And the point is absolutely profound. For the Jew, it's possible to argue with God, but it's not possible to live without him. And um, there's always a temptation when terrible tragedy is suffered by the Jewish nation. Um, I'll finish with this point. Sorry, I've gone over time. There's always a temptation that when terrible tragedy is suffered by the Jewish nation, that this is a sign of the imminent arrival of the Mashiach, often creating messianic fervor. Be warned. Be warned. The Rambam warns against this type of extrapolation. The Rambam writes in the, in the Mishnah Torah, in Hilchas Malachim, in the 12th chapter, in the second Mishnah, all these and similar matters regarding the Messianic era cannot be known by man. But these matters are undefined in the prophet's words, and even the great Sadiqim have no established tradition regarding these matters, except their own interpretation of the verses. Therefore, there is a controversy regarding these matters. Regardless of the debate concerning these questions, neither the order of the occurrence of these events leading up to the Messianic era or the precise details are among the fundamental principles of our faith. A person should not occupy himself with the agadot and homiletics concerning these and similar matters, nor should he consider them as essentials. Study of them will neither bring fear or love of God. Similarly, one should not try to determine the appointed time for the Mashiach's coming. Our rabbis declared, Tipach Rucham shall May the spirits of those who attempt to determine the time of the Mashiach coming expire. Rather, one should await and believe in the general conception of the matter. So here we have it. Two, 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 um, two stages. I'm actually, I want to finish this. So for those that have got to go, they, they should go. But I just want to finish up the end of the Ramchal here. The Ramchal says the third stage, the third stage to suffering. First of all, accept God's judgment. Secondly, challenge God. Number, number three, express joy, even when it hurts. He writes the Ramchal suffering unlike the mind and the intellect, allows for both things to combine simultaneously. He says that is the idea of a love-hate relationship. The same person who can inspire, stimulate another person to love under certain circumstances uh, can also stimulate that same person to hate without there being any contradiction. When a rich person dies, the halacha says, 
that the orphans, you know, the inheritors, say both Boruch dying or MS for the loss of, of her parents, and Boruch Hatova native on the fact that they're going to inherit a fortune. The Torah encourages and in fact demands a swirl of emotions, even in our darkest hour. And we have examples celebrating Purim. We celebrate Purim about a man who tried to murder all the Jews on the planet in the shadow of six million who died in the Holocaust. The bride and groom remembering the destruction of the of Yerushalayim on the happiest day of their lives. The swirl of emotions are vital to combine the suffering and joy, to produce them together so that you're not fatalistic about the future, so that you're optimistic about the future, so that you can push forward with Teshuvah, Tefillah and Tzedakah. Use your suffering in a positive way. And in that way, if you use your suffering in a positive way, you're fulfilling the mitzvahs of the Torah. Because as the Gemara says, that the land of Israel is acquired by Yisurin. If we take those Yisurin on board, the suffering that we have here in the land of Israel, and we don't use it to become disheartened, disillusioned, but we use it to press on, as we saw with the soldiers, with secular soldiers desperate to, to fill in on. The, the, the unity that's being shown in this country with Sadaka and of course Tefillah, learning Torah and doing Tefillah with Kavana, praying for our fellow Jews. That is the way forward. That is the way to end suffering. And, um, anyway, it took me nine extra minutes to get through all that. Uh, but I thought it was worthwhile going through that. That is the opinion of the Rambam, the Ramchal. Uh, Rabbi Yosef Albo, uh, it's the opinion, and the Rabsaji Gorm, it's the opinion of almost all the philosophers of Jewish history. That's how we deal with suffering. Move on. Yes, challenge God. Accept God's judgment. Move on. Be positive. Don't be fatalistic. There's always things we can change. We can unite and change the future. And that's what we have to do here. Uh, Hashem, next week we'll get back to um the story of uh, of uh, um we'll get back to we're up to verse 14 um sorry we're up to verse 10 uh in 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 Yechezkel, chapter 13 verse 10 where god will address the false prophets again uh and again there are false prophets here in israel today as well um and we have to be aware of that okay Sorry about uh, pushing my time. I know a few people have left, but um, I hope you enjoyed the share. I enjoyed the share, but I hope you got something from the share. And uh, please, God, we should only have a Yeshua. God should help us. We should uh, encourage each other to daven properly, to learn properly, to do tzedakah properly, to do teshuva properly. And tzedakah means supporting our troops, doing everything we can to make sure they come home safe. Um, and on that note I'll leave you Kol Tov, everybody have a great week please God next week when we come back in health and happiness it'll be with good news Kol Tov to everybody